if you will turn to Genesis, we'll read the scriptures that have to do with the study tonight, verses 12 to 16. Genesis 28, uh, speaking of Jacob, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Well, here was a great prophecy spoken to Jacob, <clears throat> making Jacob a type of those through whom he was to fulfill this prophetic word. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you from Patriarchs and Prophets, a passage on this. This is Jacob's flight in exile, and this is page 183 of Patriarchs and Prophets. Threatened with death by the wrath of Esau, Jacob went out from his father's home a fugitive, but he carried with him the father's blessing. Isaac had renewed to him the covenant promise. That was a promise made to Abraham. We heard it read here. Isaac had renewed to him the covenant promise and had bidden him as its inheritor to seek a wife of his mother's family in Mesopotamia. Yet it was with a deeply troubled heart that Jacob set out on his lonely journey. With only his staff in his hand, he must travel hundreds of miles through a country inhabited by wild roving tribes. In his remorse and timidity, he sought to avoid men lest he should be traced by his angry brother. He feared that he had lost forever the blessing that God had purposed to give him, and Satan was at hand to press temptations upon him. Put yourself in this set of circumstances and think how you would feel, if you can. The evening of the second day found him far away from his father's tent. He felt that he was an out outcast, and he knew that all this trouble had been brought upon him by his own wrong course. In this statement, or in this fact, you see a difference between Jacob and the mass of mankind when they're wrong. They always are disposed to feel that they're not all wrong, and sometimes not at all wrong, and the other fellow is wrong. The prisons are full of these people. This is a notorious fact that they all think, that, or the majority think, that the other fellow has done them in, the society is against them, and so on. Well, there's some truth in what they think, but it's, it's not all true. But Jacob knew who was wrong, and he never blamed anybody else. He blamed himself. There was nobody else to blame. Well, that shows Jacob was not only honest, but he was sensible. It was foolish to blame somebody else when no one else was to blame. The evening of the second day found him far away from his father's tent. He felt that he was an outcast, and he knew all this trouble had been brought upon him by his own wrong course. So learn a lesson from this. That when you're wrong, say, I'm wrong. Don't try to blame somebody else. 
Never blame anybody else for when you are wrong. This is a great lesson for everyone to learn. Look, look your wrong squarely in the face and say, I'm wrong. And then God will vindicate your cause. They say that Elder Alonzo Jones, Alonzo T. Jones, uh, once was told that he was wrong. He says, no, brother, I was wrong, but now I'm right. He confessed he's wrong and got right. And this is the way God intends for all of us to do. And not to palaver about it, not to uh, try to uh, make somebody else partly responsible for it and say, you bring the worst out of me and all such things as that. And think that God is going to vindicate us because of provocation. Provocations will come. This is what the Bible says. Plenty of provocations will come. And we'll be the cause in part for the provocation. But we never are to take the provocations as a justification for our uh, wrongdoing. Jacob didn't do this. And Jacob is therefore going to be a type of some who are not going to do this, who have no guile in their mouth. There's only one people in the history of this world who, who will have had no guile in their mouth. Only one. You know who they are? The darkness of despair pressed upon his soul, and he hardly dared to pray. But he was so utterly lonely that he felt the need of protection. He felt the need of protection. What kind of protection? The, these robber bands about, wild beasts about, himself the worst enemy he had, he might destroy himself. Well, what, could, what could protect him? What only could protect him? He felt the need of protection from God as he had never felt it before. With weeping and deep humiliation, he confessed his sin and entreated for some evidence that he was not utterly forsaken. Till his burdened heart found no relief, he had lost all confidence in himself. This was his greatest victory. When he got to this point, then God could do something with him. But as long as he was confident in Jacob, and Jacob's great ability and his wisdom, his uh, brilliance, and all his talents and all his wares, he couldn't do much for Jacob. But the moment that Jacob came to the place where he saw that Jacob didn't amount to anything, and I'm going to read you pretty soon what Jacob thought of himself or what God called him, then God could do something for him. It was the same way with the prodigal. And not until the prodigal realized uh, what he was, what he, what he had done, how, what a fool he had made of himself, then began to think that God could do something for him. He had lost all confidence in himself, and he feared that the God of his fathers had cast him off. But God did not forsake Jacob. His mercy was still extended to his erring, distrustful servant. What kind of a servant? An erring, distrustful servant. The Lord compassionately revealed just what Jacob needed, a Savior. He had sinned, but his heart was filled with gratitude as he saw revealed a way by which he could be restored to the favor of God. Wearied with his journey, the wanderer lay down upon the ground with a stone for his pillow. What's the stone a symbol of? Yes, he had his head then couched upon Christ. As he slept, he beheld a ladder, bright and shining, whose base rested upon the earth while the top reached to heaven. 
Oh, it's extended from from earth clear to heaven, and it's all the length of it. Upon this ladder, angels were ascending and descending. Above it was a Lord of glory, and from the heavens his voice was heard. I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon he lay as an exile and fugitive, was promised to him and to his posterity with the assurance, In thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So outside of the seed of Jacob, the families of earth are not going to be blessed. Not at least the blessing that God pronounces here. And now what blessing was that? Jacob didn't live to get the blessing. He died 2,000 years and more before the blessing was to be received by his posterity. So you see, this is a great prophecy projecting down into the end time this whole action. So we now come upon the stage when these prophetic promises are to be fulfilled to somebody. Now we'll read more about this. This promise had been given to Abraham and to Isaac, and now it was renewed to Jacob. Then, in special regard to his present loneliness and distress, the words of comfort and encouragement were spoken. Behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee, until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. The Lord knew the evil influence that would surround Jacob and the perils to which he would be exposed. In mercy he opened up the future before the repentant fugitive, that he might understand the divine purpose with reference to himself and be prepared to resist the temptations that would surely come to him. When alone amid idolaters and scheming men, there would be ever before him the high standard at which he must aim, and the knowledge that through him the purpose of God was reaching its accomplishment. Through him the purpose of God was reaching its accomplishment. It hasn't reached its accomplishment yet. So you see, this was a prophecy. And Jacob knew it was a prophecy, and Jacob had faith to believe in it, as though it were going to be fulfilled right there at his toes, right before his very eyes. He believed it. He knew that God had, had included him in it, that he was to be the keystone, as it were, to the fulfillment of this accomplishment. That it was reaching its accomplishment would constantly prompt him to faithfulness. In this vision, the plan of redemption was presented to Jacob, not fully, but in such parts as were essential to him at that time. You see how important that statement is? What do you understand here? Only present truth. That's right. He opened up to him that part of the vision which was present truth at that time. But he didn't open up to him that part of the vision which is present truth at this time. That was all folded in and all remained there sleeping until the time came for it to come uh, into active application and become a present truth. When the present need obtained, then the truth came, and the truth fits the need. The mystic ladder revealed to him in his dream was the same which Christ referred to in his conversation with Nathaniel. 
But I see this extends way down into the New Testament uh, period. But it wasn't fulfilled then. So it had to extend beyond that. And it can't go beyond the end of the world. <clears throat> so it has to be fulfilled between Christ's day and the uh, close of probation. <clears throat> now this is uh, what Matthew writes. Said he, Christ, ye shall see heaven open. This is Christ speaking now. Ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What was the latter then a symbol of? Miscommunication. Yes. But he said he would see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And Jacob saw angels ascending and descending upon a ladder. What was the ladder symbolical of? The Son of Man. Up to that time, up to the time of man's rebellion against the government of God, there had been free communion between God and man. And that was in the Garden of Eden. Free communion between God and man. So now, since that was uh, destroyed, that communion, and since there is to take place the restitution of all uh, the divine institutions that God placed in the uh, first dominion, then what is to be restored? What is one of them? There's free communion between God and man. See? So God is going, to, is going to bring about a set of ideal conditions for this communion between him and man. Now, there's no ideal com uh, conditions in the world today. Just the opposite. So you see, for God to bring about the restitution of this privilege, and you may call it an institution of uh, communication between heaven and earth, then God has to do something. He's going to have to have a place as he had in the beginning. He put Adam and Eve in a place where they could have unmolested, free communion with God. So that's what God is going to do in the end. He's going to restore his people. But now he's going to do this through whom? To whom did he give the vision? Jacob. So he's going to do this through Jacob's posterity. And who will they be? What will they be called? Jacobites. Right. And how many will there be of them to start with? 144,000. And uh, what kind of people will they be? The people in whom there's no guile, you see. And when God gets that kind of people and puts them in a place that he has for them, the first dominion restored, as, as, as Micah puts it in the, sixth, or in the fourth chapter, uh, the, the kingdom restored, the first dominion restored, then they'll have perfect communion with God. See? In fact, the Bible says before they ask, what will he do? He'll answer. In other words, he anticipates their, their thoughts, their wishes, their needs, and will provide them before they actually formulate them. All right, now this next part. Up to the time of man's rebellion against the government of God, there had been free communion between God and man. But the sin of Adam and Eve separated earth from heaven. What did it do? It brought a great separation. So man could no longer have free communion. It was a barrier place there. There had to be an intercessor after that. Man could not approach God without an intercessor. And that intercessor then was predicted uh, for 2,000 years by the ceremonial sacrifice. And then finally, when Christ came, 
Then he became that intercessor. Uh, in the meantime, throughout those long uh, generations, they had to, to use the ceremonial system, the priest. Up to the, but the sin of Adam and Eve separated earth from heaven so that man could not have communion with his maker. Yet the world was not left in solitary hopelessness. The latter represents Jesus, the appointed medium of communication. What the latter represents? Jesus, the appointed medium of communication. Now think upon this, you see. The world doesn't think upon this at all. That's why they don't have communication with God. That's why they guess and gamble and theorize and conjecture and speculate about God. Yes, we believe in God, but we don't believe in this kind of a God. And so they don't agree. All kinds of philosophies and religions and, and uh, ideologies that, that do uh, acknowledge God, but the different kinds of gods. But now, if we understand, if we see what Jacob saw, and if we're going to be Jacobites, we ought to have that vision that Jacob had, and Jacob had to have inspiration to have that vision, you know that Jacob didn't uh, inspire himself. He didn't see that ladder with angels going up and down on his own. The Holy Spirit opened his eyes to see that. That was a heavenly vision. So if we're going to be Jacobites, the true lineal Jacobites in the, uh, in the spiritual line, then we have to have our eyes open to see this ladder. And then we'll have communication. And then we'll be able to talk with God and know God and hear God's answers to our questions and our prayers. Then we'll become better acquainted with God, be better on better terms with Him, familiar terms with God, and then we will be different people. Then we'll begin to become what Jacob finally became. What did Jacob finally become? Israel. What did he become? Israel. Yes, his name was changed to? Israel. What did Israel mean in contrast to Jacob? What did Jacob mean? It means supplanter. He supplanted his brother who had the birthright. He was, he was covetous, jealous, envious, and he coveted what was not his own. He wanted the best. Esau didn't appreciate it. A terrible tragedy. But then he he finally came to the place where he did appreciate it, but it was too late. He thought it with tears, but to no purpose. Now, Jacob had it, but he, he gained it unlawfully. But anyway, he repented. <clears throat> God accepted his repentance. God then gave him this vision and made him the father now of the Jacobites. And now he, he, he has this vision of how we are going to have communication with God. And someday, somebody is going to fulfill this vision. Now, it all depends upon how much vision they have along the way. There's going to be a, a, a relative development here. That is, it's going to be developmental. They're not going to fulfill it instantly, but they're going to grow into it. That's what this vision shows. They're going to be just, just exactly like Jacob was. Finally, had his name changed after... He had gone through some sad experiences and learned some lessons. Had his name changed to Overcomer, a prince with God. Before that, he was a supplanter. One more statement here. The latter represents Jesus, the appointed medium of communication. Had he not with his own merit bridged the gulf that sin had made, 
The ministering angels could have held no communication with fallen man. Well, without the latter, the angels had no access to man, and man no access to the angels and to God. Christ connects man in his weakness and helplessness with a source of infinite power. All this was revealed to Jacob in his dream, although his mind at once grasped a part of the revelation, its great and mysterious truths were the study of his lifetime and unfolded to his understanding more and more, but not all. He came to understand a good deal more than at the first uh, here at uh, Bethel when he understood just enough to sustain him at that time. But as he studied this vision through his days, he came to understand it more and more and more. And one wonders what all he did understand, what God gave him to really see. And one, one wonders if God gave him to see uh, down this far some of the things that are transpiring. We don't know, but he came to understand it more and more. Well, it doesn't say what the more and more was. All right, suffice that. Now, I'm going to read to you another statement. Uh, this one's from Selected Message. Messages, page 279 and 280. <clears throat> this is book one, 279 and 280. Jacob in the night vision saw earth connected with heaven by a ladder reaching to the throne of God. He saw the angels of God. Well, he saw the throne of God then. It doesn't tell us whether he saw God on the throne. But he saw the throne of God, and he knew God was there clothed with garments of heavenly brightness, these are the angels, passing down from heaven and up to heaven upon the shining ladder. This must have been a sight. Just see these shining angels, thousands upon thousands of them, passing up and down, up and down, up and down, constantly. What were they? What were they going up and down for? Just for exercise? What were they doing? The bottom of this ladder rested upon the earth while the top of it reached to the highest heaven and rested upon the throne of Jehovah. So, if it rested upon the throne of Jehovah, something was coming from Jehovah. Or, as we better know today, Yahweh, Jehovah is an anglicized uh, spelling of the uh, true uh, name. Thus brightness from the throne of God beamed down upon the ladder and reflected a light of inexpressible glory upon the earth, clear from the throne of God to earth. The latter represented Christ, who has opened the communication between earth and heaven. In Christ's humiliation, he descended to the very depth of human woe in sympathy and pity for fallen man, which was represented to Jacob by one end of the ladder resting upon the earth, while the top of the ladder reaching into heaven represents the divine power of Christ, who grasps the infinite, and thus links earth to heaven and finite man to, infant, to the infinite God. Through Christ, the communication is open between God and man. Angels may pass from heaven to earth with messages of love to fallen man and to minister unto those who shall be heirs of salvation. It is through Christ alone that the heavenly messengers minister to men. So... If we're going to have angels ministering unto us, we have to be conscious of the fact that it is only through our connection with Christ. Otherwise, uh, the Lord is not going to permit the angels to minister unto us. 
Now that's what the Spirit of Prophecy says. Now I'm going to read to you what the message says at this hour. This is from Shepherd Rod, Volume 1, page 61. Jacob was now to become the father of Israel, twelve tribes, through whom many nations shall be blessed. A type of Israel by the promise. A type, you see, of Israel by the promise. The twelve tribes, the 144,000. You see, the Lord didn't give Sister White to write this. He left this now for someone else to write. How much Jacob saw of what she wrote and what he's writing, we don't know. But you can see one is the extension of the other, leading on to fuller accomplishment. The dream which he had in the night was only a vision and representation of some future event. The meaning of the dream can be only one thing. If the latter represents Christ, the angels as messengers, God the Father at the head, and Jacob at the foot, it means a complete connection with heaven and the true Israel. What Israel? The true Israel. And this book says over and over the true Israel is the 144,000. Now, meaning a complete connection with heaven and the true Israel, dash. The latter rain, the loud cry of the third angel's message. What does it represent? The true Israel with the latter rain in the loud cry of the third angel's message. Now, all of you remember this. Now, this is as far as the light shone in 1930. Just that far, no farther. Well, maybe it did shine a little further. Let's read this one back here. This is, this is page 228. It was Jacob who, in the night on the way to Padan Aram, had the dream of the great ladder, which reached from earth to heaven, and the angels of God ascended and descended upon it. This vision was a representation of the latter rain and the loud cry of the third angel's message in the time of the harvest. What does this add? To the other statement. In the time of harvest. That's what it adds. You see, that's, an, that's another facet, uh, conceptual facet, another concept added to the other three. The latter rain, the loud cry, the time of the harvest. Third angel's message in the time of the harvest. The latter representing Christ, the angels, the messengers, God the Father at one end and Jacob at the other meaning a complete connection with heaven and earth. What did it mean? A complete connection with heaven and earth. Now, if you have a complete connection with heaven and earth, what do you have to worry about? No concern. This is why they're going to be invincible and invulnerable. Now, this is the volume one and the pocket edition, uh, which uh, amplifies uh, this a bit. I'll read it to you. On the first, this is page 33 of the pocket edition. On the first night of his flight from the murderous wrath of Esau, Jacob dreamed and behold a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Genesis 28:12. What does the dream mean? Being another facet of the same typology, it must necessarily be a prefigurement of a noteworthy event to overtake God's people, the Jacobites. Now you've got a whole lot more light. What is it a prefigurement of? 
a noteworthy event to overtake God's people, the Jacobites. Now, if I'd had time, I would have brought the symbolic code and read to you the statement about the Jacobites, when the Jacobites are born. And what does it tell us about that, when the Jacobites are born? From the time the message came. The Jacobites are born at the time the message came, the message of the 144,000 Jacobites. First, Esau and Jacob had to be born, antitypical Esau and Jacob, the two classes in the Adventist church, the ministering class and the uh, lay class, Jacob representing the lay class. And uh, the Jacobites couldn't be born until Jacob was born. And since Jacob was born of four mothers, that is, the Jacobites were born of four mothers, they were younger than Jacob, then you see it had to be after 1930, quite a ways after 1930. The Jacobites uh, were born. There were a few Jacobs before that. Since the latter with one end on earth and the other end in heaven symbolizes Christ, and he gives the reference Patriarchs and Prophets 184, which I've just read, and since the angels walking up and down the ladder are his messengers, the Great Controversy, page 512, the whole signifies that Christ shall establish through himself a sure and constant communication between heaven and earth. What are you going to do? Establish a sure and constant communication between heaven and earth. Now, there isn't a government on earth who wouldn't give anything to have that kind of communication. It couldn't be broken. You see? Have, have their code. Code couldn't be broken. They could communicate at freedom. Free communion, you see. There isn't a government or a community or a people on earth that has that. That's what God's people are going to have in the restitution of all things. They have restored what God uh, gave to uh, the pair in the Garden of Eden, that kind of communion. Now, something has to take place. We're going to have that kind of communion. Now, long ago, this statement was written in the last volume of the Testimonies in page 19, 16. You know what it says? This is a well-known statement. One of many Adventists know it, so you folks should know this statement. Page 16. It is impossible to give any idea of the experience of the people of God who shall be alive upon the earth. Now think of what she's talking about here. She's not talking about the Seventh-day Adventist church. She's not talking about Laodicea. She's talking about the people of God. Now, uh, Adventists will quickly put up their hand and say, Teacher, that's got to be the Adventist church. Well, it is, but it's the true Israel in the Adventist church, as she puts it and as the message puts it. That little company that are standing in the light. It would be impossible to give any idea of the experience of the people of God who shall be alive upon the earth when celestial glory and a repetition of the persecution of the past are blended. What's going to be blended? Celestial glory. Now, what is that celestial glory? Coming down from the throne to? Down the ladder to earth. And then what else? Blended with the persecutions of the past. Well, what caused the persecutions of the past? And you say, well, Hitler. Well, Hitler caused some of the persecutions, but not all the persecutions. There were a vast number of persecutions before he ever came along. What, what, what was the main cause of the persecution? False religion. False religion has caused 
90% or maybe 95 or 99% of all the persecutions. And it was a religious, false religious streak in that man too that caused him to persecute the Jews. They were walked in the light proceeding from the throne of God. By means of the angels, there will be constant communication between heaven and earth. What was she referring to? Now you see the vision has come down this far. Now there's no other people that I have ever heard of that know much about this. They just take it in a general figurative way, you see. But what I'm presenting to you deals with it typologically. And this is what Paul says, that all those things happened unto them. For what? For examples. And are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the earth are come. So now we're in the time the prophets have looked forward to. In the time when these visions and dreams and types and symbols and similitudes are all to be fulfilled. Yes, by means of the angels there will be constant communication between heaven and earth. And Satan, surrounded by evil angels and claiming to be God, will work miracles of all kinds to deceive, if possible, the very elect. God's people will not find their safety in working miracles, for Satan will counterfeit the miracles that will be wrought. Now, I want you to come with me to Isaiah 41, from verse 14. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee. Now, this is, a, this is a prophetic picture of Jacob. Now, the other was a typological picture of Jacob that didn't deal with this aspect here entirely. Though, if we carefully trace the development of the type, we'll see that this is what Jacob was. He was an outcast. He had uh, stolen his uh, brother's birthright. He had uh, lied. He had cheated. You see, he had done about as much wrong as one could do to his brother. Then he had to flee as a fugitive from justice. Then he got himself into trouble where he went, and he seemed to be in trouble all along. And finally, at the end of his years of service to his father-in-law, he got himself into more trouble, um, and not, not due to his own uh, cupidity at that time, but uh, the Lord uh, inspired him to get away, and instead of telling uh, Laban, here now, I've served you these many years. Uh, I've uh, done everything I could to improve your lot. Now I want to leave. He didn't do that. What did he do? Stole away. Stole away. Stole away. And he confirmed He confirmed uh, his father-in-law's suspicion that he, he had done wrong. But when you steal away, that's what it looks like. So he again showed his bad streak. Also, the Lord had trouble with Jacob for a long time. He regarded him as a worm, pretty low. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee. Now the Lord doesn't say, look, you're a low, no good worm. Get back into your hole and stay. I don't want any more to do with you. What did he say? Yes, you're a worm, but I'm going to help you. Now worms change, change into some beautiful things, oh, some beautiful butterflies. Well, this, this happens to be a transformation. It's not going to be like a butterfly. It's going to be far greater than that. Listen to what it says. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. What is he going to do? He's going to redeem him. Now, listen. Behold, I will make thee a new, sharp, threshing instrument. Now, do you remember what I read in the three statements of the rod about uh, this ladder? 
what it pointed forward to, and in what time? In the time of the loud cry, in the time of the harvest. Well, if it's in the time of the harvest, God's got to have a harvest instrument. Well, there isn't anything in the spirit of prophecy that, that tells us what this instrument's going to be. There's nothing in the Bible that says Jacob is going to be the instrument except this statement right here. This tells us that God is going to bring, bring about a great transformation from the state of a worm to this wonderful picture here that is made graphic. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in the Lord, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. What's God going to do with Jacob? You see, here is a complete transformation. But it's taken time. The God has patiently bided his time. <clears throat> He's worked with Jacob through the centuries gradually developed him. Now we've come down uh, to the fag end of time, right down to the very tiptoes of the image. And now it's time uh, to bring Jacob to maturity, just like your corn or anything else you plant. When it comes up, it's perfect. As it develops stage by stage, it's perfect. But still, it hasn't put on the corn, and it's the corn you're waiting for. But finally comes the corn, and you better get it before the little animals get it. Or they'll get in with the little hands and get it if you don't get it. Well, the Lord's going to watch, and you're not going to let one grain fall to the earth, he says. He's going to get all that, that he sees is good. Now, how's he going to get it? He's going to thresh it with this instrument here, after he gets the instrument. Not only does he describe Jacob in these terms, but he also pictures Jacob as a new, sharp, threshing it. Pardon me, I'm, I'm misstating myself. As he battle axe, and he's weapons of war. And he has still other figures, too. Completely different, but beautiful figures. <clears throat> now, you turn over to 42. And we'll read verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. Mine elect. Now you see here, you've got, you've got singular and plural here in the same breath almost. In the first clause, you have singular. In the second clause, you have plural. Who are his elect? The 144,000. Who are, who are his servants? The 144,000. The angel of Revelation 7 has come to seal whom? The servants of God. Is that what the, uh, uh, the angel is told to do? To seal them in their foreheads. Well, now this tells you that the servant is his elect. And who is the servant? Who does it say the servant is? You can come over here to 43, and it tells you who the servant is. But now the, thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he, that trans, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. What has he done? He has redeemed thee. Well, he saved them. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. And now, uh, let's read the verse, uh, the 10th verse. Ye are my witnesses. Now, this is Jacob, but it says, ye are my witnesses. And this is plural again. 
Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Now it reverts back to singular. So you see what he what he's showing us, that the 144,000 collectively are his servants. Now, if they are his servants, they must be individually servants, or they can't be collectively a servant, right? The sum cannot be greater than uh, its part. So you've got a servant, and this is a singular statement, a servant. Now, it's made up of his elect, or his redeemed, 144,000 servants. Now, what do you think he can do with them? he got to communicate with them. So what kind of communication will he have? Well, heaven's going to be open. The glory from the throne of God is going to, is going to shine down the ladder, clear to earth. And there's going to be communication, uninterrupted communication between heaven and earth. Well, this is a thrilling picture for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, and whose hearts are not loaded with something else, something foreign to the truth of God. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, and that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. All right, now, uh, uh, 44. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Who is he talking about? Jacob is long gone. He's talking about antitypical Jacob, antitypical Israel. But why does he use Jacob and Israel? Why not stick with Jacob or stick with Israel? Showing us now that he starts with Jacob and he ends with whom? Israel. Jacob turns into Israel. The worm Jacob turns into whom? Into that new sharp threshing instrument that is Israel. <laughs> you have another type, a parallel type. It's parallel and yet it extends, it covers certain areas of the, of the parallel more in detail than the Jacob part does and vice versa. Now let's come to, to uh, Psalm 22. Verse 6, and if you can't see uh, marvelous uh, providence and divine design in, in this uh, circumstance, then I don't know, I, I think it would be difficult for anyone to see anything that God has for them. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Who is this? This is David. David says he's a worm. And that means that God said he was a worm. God inspired him to write this. What did he say Isaiah was? I mean, uh, uh, Jacob was? It was a worm. Now, the two, it's a strange thing. It, 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 it would be scarcely reasonable that God would make these two men to be the same thing and in the end turn out to be the same thing in the establishing or the reestablishing of the kingdom of God. Both of the types. One, one types certain features and the other types certain features. The line is of Jacob. But the line also comes through uh, David. And uh, then who becomes the king? But of what, of what people? Israel, you see. You can't separate them, but they have some different meanings as you turn it around and look at the whole type, you see. Uh, Jacob doesn't become a king, 
But David becomes a king. But David is a lineal, uh, is a progenitor of the kings. David's not the original progenitor. But of the Jacobites, over whom David will rule as king, he's not the progenitor. The original progenitor, Jacob is. See? So you have to see these, these aspects of this whole typology as they overlap and as the whole type turns around, then you can see them. All right, now turn to, uh, oh, there are just too many scriptures to read about David here now. That David, uh, David has a metamorphosis, just like uh, Jacob has. Jacob uh, turned from a worm, uh, the figure changed, and he became a new sharp threshing instrument which God used mightily. Now, what does, what does David become? From a worm? Uh, that, that uh, as it says here, uh, and the people despised him and men reproached him. What does he become? He becomes a prince and he becomes a king. Uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I don't have time to read them. You know them too well. But I am going to read from Zechariah 12. What does that show us? Zechariah 12. I'm going to read to you. I'm going to read to you from uh, uh, verse uh, 7. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. Well, of course, Judah now is part of the kingdom of Israel, the two-tribe kingdom. It's where the kings came from, and David came from the line of Judah. So you can see now how David comes in as the ruler here, and uh, pardon me, how Judah comes in in, in this particular uh, line of the prophecy. Because it's a house of Judah that produced the king. Uh, verse 8. In that day. Now this is the day of the consummation of all these things. But all these prophecies come to pass. The accomplishment of it all. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God as the angel of the Lord before them. What's going to happen? Verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. What does it say in the 8th verse? The house of David shall be as God. Now if the house of David is going to be as God, then they won't have any trouble having communication with God. Right? Yeah. Yes. Now, how are they going to have that communication? Oh, this, this, this ladder is going to become a reality then. Angels are going to be ascending and descending. They're going to be messengers carrying, enabling God's people on earth to communicate with him in heaven. Now, this is why the work is going to be cut short in righteousness. God can tell them, you go there, right to that place, or you do this. All of you follow this instruction. Whatever God sees needs to be done, to be done instantly. And furthermore, uh, the Lord can catch them up and put them where he wants them. You don't believe that? He can catch them up and put them, put them where he wants them? You don't believe he can do that? Well, if he can't do that, then he's lost his power. Because he used to do that, didn't he? Mm -hmm. When did he do that, did you know of? Philip. Picked up Philip. And Philip didn't know 
precisely all about it, but God knew all about it. God saw that there was somebody that needed to have some instruction, some help. So God says, Philip's a man. And he saw the man over here, and he said, here's the man here. So what did he do? He picked up Philip and put him over there. And when Philip got there, who did he find? He found the eunuch. What was the eunuch doing? He was he was bludgeoning his, his head on the book of Isaiah, or with the book of Isaiah. Couldn't understand something. Philip explained to him quickly what happened. He baptized him right then. This is the way God intends to work. And this is the way it's going to be all over the earth. God's going to get every honest soul. 144,000 are going to go out. They're going to be sickle. They're going to gather them in the time of the harvest. That angel that had power over fire comes out from the altar. They're going to be with them. And he's going to enable them uh, to just do, do just what God bids them to do. So that everywhere on earth there'll be uh, somebody to find every honest one and to baptize them, just like Philip baptized the eunuch. That's the way God's going to do a quick work in the earth. Now, who knows about this? Well, people know about this. You go to any church on earth today, they'll not know about it. They've got some pieces of, of knowledge, but they can't put them together. Only God knows how to put them together. And who's he going to use? He's going to use two worms. Really the same worm, but two aspects. The Davidian aspect and the Jacobian aspect, you see. Now, neither are, are too handsome, you see. The, the 144,000 do not have antecedents that are too handsome. Now, we speak of some rich people today say, well, don't, don't look into the genealogy or don't go pulling the, the, the closet door open because a lot of skeletons will fall out. You see, well, that's so with many, many families on earth. And that's so with 144,000. God says they are brands plucked from the burning. Right? Brands plucked from the burning. They're about burned up with sin. Yet God's going to pluck them forth. Now, who, who is the symbol of that? What did he say about Jacob? Well, Jacob was about gone. But what did he say God did in his mercy? Uh, he, yeah, that's right. He rescued him. And he held on to that vision that God gave him. Now there's one thing more about that vision that I haven't disclosed. If there's going to be communication between heaven and earth, then where are God's people? There's some place on earth. What is that place? What do you call it? That's the kingdom of God. Now what's going to go forth from the kingdom? This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached where? As a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, during this period of preaching the gospel from this place, the kingdom, that has a wall of fire about it, where God himself is, what's going to happen? Going to gather in whom? Great multitude that no man can number. You think God knows where they are and who they are? Nobody else knows, you see. Now, we don't have to worry. The Lord is going to have constant communication during this time of the kingdom. And it was this vision of the kingdom that, uh, that sustained Jacob through all of his troubles. You see? That's what I read. This vision sustained him. This dream. This is what sustains God's people today. You know, it's a, it's a strange thing that all the different ones that have studied this message 
and have, for one reason or another, uh, given up part of it and gone their own way, they never lose, very seldom if ever lose, the vision of the kingdom. Whether they believe the rest of it and are with us or not, they, they still hold to the kingdom. They mix up some of uh, their own ideas in it. But they still have this vision of the kingdom. And this is what Jacob had. This is what sustained Jacob through all of his troubles and all of his trials and all of his travels. The vision of the kingdom. Well, what fascinates me and thrills me the most is how God is going to cut the work short in righteousness. What's he going to have? He's going to have that great army of Joel, the like of which never was, Joel says, and never will be again until many generations. What do the margins say? Generation and generation. Just on and on and on and on. Ad infinitum. On forever, you see, without let. That's the people that God is going to have. And is going to, this people is going to be a, a devouring fire. As they go along, what are they going to do? They devour everything. They're going to leave devastation behind them. Well, that means that this fire is a spiritual fire. It's going to it's going to take out of Babylon everything that's gone. What's it going to leave there? A desolate wilderness. That's all. Nothing good left. They take every good thing, you see, that is every every person that is to be saved. They take them. Where are they going to take them to? They take them to the kingdom. That's where God is going to put them. They're in the barn. That's where they're going going to go forth to get in the harvest. Get all this good grain. Bring it in, golden grain, cheese, and put it in the barn. That's the kingdom. All the good fish and all the waters of the earth. Bring them in and put them where? In one bottle? Twelve different bottles. Why? Because that's all the kinds of people there are on the earth, you see. Both represent the kingdom. The twelve vessels and the barn. But the vessels represent the tribes and the barn represents the place. When God gets the barn full, gets the vessels full, what does he say? What Christ say? It is, it is finished. What does he do? Throws down the censer. Why has he been holding the censer? What's in the censer? Huh? Yes, but well, what's going up from the censer? Huh? The incense. Yes. Incense is going up. And when he throws down the censer, it's all done. No more uh, of his righteousness is to be commingled with the prayer of a human being. It's all over. Anybody who prays after that has no incense of Christ's righteousness commingled with his prayers. You see, he's lost. Probation is closed. Mercy angels have, has folded its wings and departed. A little short time of winter, terrible winter weather remains then. The plagues will fall and the end will come. And God has cut it short in righteousness and made a quick work in the earth. The gospel of the kingdom, the everlasting uh, gospel, has accomplished its work. It has restored every divine institution. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association. You can find us online at www.bashanhill.org and you can call us at 417-835-2162.